Dr. Mickey Levy is Chief Economist for the Americas and Asia for Berenberg Capital Markets, LLC. He has over 30 years' experience conducting economic and public policy research and forecasting. And Dr. Robert Kaplan is Emeritus Professor of Leadership Development at the Harvard Business School. Today, they discussed their recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled, How to Get America Working Again, and what methods the federal and state governments should employ to reopen the economy. Let's listen in. Terrific. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, it's been great to have uh, such good participation, and we're delighted today to have Robert Kaplan and Mickey Levy uh, joining with us. Um, and we look forward to having them uh, talk to us about uh, really the, the outline of a plan for beginning to get the economy back to work and back to working again. And uh, we thought uh, it would be a great conversation for this group. And I'll turn it over to, uh, to Robert and Mickey. Uh, often this is viewed as a choice between uh, the health and safety of potential victims of COVID-19 and quote, how do we get the economy working? And I think about it that way actually biases the discussion because you're looking at uh, people whose parents or grandparents are you know, sick in an ICU versus some vague entity in the economy. And and that's kind of, I think, the wrong terms of discussion. Uh, I mean, the current shutdowns, we now have 22, 23 million unemployed people. Uh, And unemployed people with loss of jobs, loss of income, we know from past recessions, much milder than this, suffer uh, greatly in their own health. Uh, There's increased incidences of diet, diabetes and heart conditions and substance abuse and mental uh, disorders and even suicide. So the choice is really between one set of sick people and another set of sick people. Uh, And there's not, you know, there's, uh, how do we make that trade-off between uh, the, you know, the people who are still getting sick and uh, dying of COVID-19 versus the health and safety of the tens of millions uh, who have been forcibly idled. Uh, and so there are no easy choices. Either way, more people are getting sick uh, and the mortality rate will increase. So having said that as the framing, uh, that there's no simple choices here, everybody agrees that uh, a foundation for getting uh, employment back is we need much more testing. And I have to say, even looking at the stories today, it's really depressing that we're just testing as many people this week as we did last week, when we should be testing uh, two to four times as many week to week. Uh, we're not going to make any progress here. And some of the tests that are being used uh, still have a fairly high 30% false negative rate. So we're just not learning from the best practices that are going on elsewhere in the world, whether it's Taiwan, South Korea, uh, or Asia, or even Europe, about how to do testing of contacts of people who had turned out to be uh, infected. And, and this is almost a national scandal uh, that we have been so slow on implementation. And on policy area, I guess we have no government agency in charge of implementing testing. We have agencies that approve testing uh, of various types, but no one has a source of responsibility to say, we're going to double or triple or quintuple uh, the number of people who are getting tested. Uh, so that's really a gap in our in the execution at the national level. And finally, you know, what we've Mickey and I have written about is that 
you know, one size fits all policies are really not appropriate for a nation as diverse as the United States. And so any return to work policies must be selective, both geographically, by region and by industry. And so if we think about regional criteria, uh, you know, what should we look at? Which regions could we consider opening up? Uh, we can look what's the current incidence of the disease in the region, because there's huge variation, uh, state to state, and then county to county within the state. Uh, and there's variation in the density of population and the housing. Uh, so things that make sense for New York City or downtown Boston are not gonna make sense in uh, Nebraska or other uh, rural, less densely uh, populated places. Two is what's the availability of convenient rapid testing in the region? And the more availability there is, uh, the more we can think about getting that region back to work. And third, what's the, what's the current capacity of intensive care beds, trained healthcare personnel, and personal property equipment? And so regions that feel they have an adequate supply of ICU beds, should the incidence of COVID-19 increase, that there's a good supply of trained healthcare personnel. Not every nurse can work a ventilator. It's a very specialized uh, training that is required. Uh, and do we have adequate masks and other PPE for the healthcare workers? So that's kind of you know, regional criteria that enable us to selectively open up some regions uh, somewhat faster than others. And then which industries, which sectors should we consider uh, letting go back to work? One, look at the age distribution of employees. Uh, the mortality rate is disproportionately among elderly people. Uh, you know, th there's a very low percentage of people under the age of 50 who, even if they contract the disease, end up having a fatal outcome. So they're, they're less at risk. Uh, what's the nature of the job? How easy is it for the people when they're doing their work to be uh, physically distanced uh, from other people? So take a big industry like construction, which has, you know, maybe 50, 10, 15 million people working in it is kind of a natural distancing. These people don't have to work uh, within six feet of each other, you know, if they're paving roads or building uh, buildings. Uh, so there's a natural physical distancing in some jobs more so than others. Uh, we want to look at the importance of that sector in the supply chain uh, for the production and distribution and retail availability of food, safety supplies, health, pharma, and the personal pop protection equipment. So some uh, industries or some businesses are kind of more central for that than others, but it's kind of tricky there because any manufacturing company has a fairly elaborate supply chain. And if you allow the company to operate, but cut off one of its critical suppliers, which could be a third or fourth tier supplier that the actual main company doesn't even know about, it will soon get starved for parts and not able to fulfill. Uh, look at the total employment in the sector. So retail employs, uh, you know, tens of, you know, more than 10 million people. Uh, and the more we can get small retail establishments, uh, which may only have one or two people in a store, uh, then we're really not only getting those people back to work, but we're saving businesses that otherwise are very close to bankruptcy. So I think by being kind of thoughtful about where, where we uh, open and uh, which sectors within that, and the availability of testing and adequate healthcare capacity, I think can influence uh, this dialogue that I hope the business community is able to conduct uh, with its state and county and municipal uh, uh, officials.
And I see now Mickey is is online here. Uh, well, so Bob, thanks so much for the introduction. I mean, maybe I'll let Mickey, if you want to make a few introductory remarks. And then I had some questions I was going to ask you guys about your plan and then open it up to some general questions, if that's okay. Well, thanks. Let me just add a few things that, that, that Bob mentioned. Um, we have seven and a half million people uh, working or had been working in construction. And that's just an obvious area where, um, while some of the governors say it is essential work, there's a lot of confusion. A lot of uh, construction workers are not working. And that's where physical distancing is, is the norm. Um, and they tend to have younger workers. Um, Bob mentioned a lot of, um, you know, small retail firms. Well, well Mickey, let me just say, before we, before we leave construction, because I didn't, why don't you talk about there's a supply chain for construction as well? Yes. Okay. So, so if you just think about um, these construction workers, um, first, they, they, they're producing something that's very important. Um, there happens to be a shortage of homes for sale. There's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in public infrastructure. And if you think about any, const any construction activity, you have to think about uh, what goes into it, the supply chains. Uh, the materials, the lumber, the copper, everything that goes into it, and all of the people there that are employed. So you ca you can't just take an industry's number. You have to you have to multiply at times everything that goes into that. And as Bob mentioned earlier, um, it's it's the supply chains all the way down where people are knocked out of business, and you need to have them uh, back at, back at work. Why should people working in a lumber yard? Not, not be back at work now. Let me bring up an, another industry that we don't know if it's considered essential or non-essential. Um, auto repairs and auto parts. Um, those, there's no reason why those are closed down. And for a lot of people, they're essential. And if, if we think about, once again, the supply chains for the parts there, uh, these, are, these are all very important to society. I, I, I can stop there. I mean, I don't think it's, it's necessary to, to go on. Um, you know, we fully understand the importance of being cautious um, and judicious and, and minding the, the health of society and individuals, but um, there are clear areas where we need to get, you know, we have a roadmap and we need to get moving along. The, the longer this goes on, um, a lot of the... Uh, Effects not just on on the unemployment numbers, but on the, the health of the people who are unemployed, and the burdens uh, they mount. So I'll stop there. Well, terrific. Um, I think like a lot of plans, you guys are identifying testing um, as a critical need to sort of make things start to work again. And I think business leaders are struggling with, you know, testing is a really complicated topic, and just saying we need more testing, I think is. People have now accepted that, but they're quite confused. Can you guys talk a little bit about what type of testing you think is most important and the, the pace at which leaders might, you know, we, we might speculate that that testing will be available and then how you think um, people might think about getting back to work first when there's very limited testing and what kind yeah. of regime would you use the limited testing with? And then in a much wider testing availability regime, how, how much you guys see yeah. it? Work? So there's, there's kind of multiple answers to that. So let me go. Uh, first, if we want testing to be widely available, 
you know, we can't do it in central locations. Uh, sometimes, in, like in Nebraska or Idaho, there's no central location. So what Mickey and I talked about, Mickey looked up the number yesterday, there are 67,000 pharmacies in America. And most people are relatively close to a pharmacy. And the pharmacy has not only a pharmacist, but often a pharmacist assistant. So there are already people in the 67,000 establishments that should be able to do a testing. Uh, and, and they can go there. And, uh, and what we need is a, a test that's relatively convenient, you know, and, and it's reasonably reliable. But if you go there, and what we need is a government to certify that, yes, yes, this is a qualified person to do this test, and maybe give them a stamp you can carry on your mobile phone. So if you went to work or you went to a, a store somewhere, you can say, no, no, I've been tested. Here's my certification. It lasts for a week. Uh, but we have to be, so, you know, for the masses, you know, leveraging 67,000 pharmacies is a way of getting the testing out there. Any large establishment of 100 or more people, you can have a pharmacist assistant that's out there in the parking lot or in the entrance of the office building. You know, you know, have you been tested in the last week? And, you know, and so they can do the testing. Uh, you know, and, and Amazon saying, well, you know, we're going to test all our employees. Well, you know, that's a lot of employees, but it's still not 180 million employees, which is what we need to be able to test. But somehow there's no one in Washington who's thinking about how do we certify and get the test stuff in the hands of pharmacists. And there are articles today. I mean, I was having breakfast and it was like I was reading the Twilight Zone. They, they, they want to do CT scans for testing. Uh, oh, can you imagine putting a CT scan into 67,000 pharmacies? I mean, it's, it's just unrealistic. How, how are we ever going to scale up for testing if we have to rely on CT scans or crispy genetic uh, manipulation, uh, which is some of the things being talked about this morning? Uh, the types of tests, first, you know, if someone is coughing, feel they have symptoms, for sure they should get, you know, access within the day uh, and a scheduled time without a long queue to that. But in a regional level, we should be testing a thousand people every week, kind of in every locality, just to get a sense what is the underlying rate of infection in this region. Are we are we safe, or are we about to take off into some epidemic? And it only takes a thousand samples in any given population uh, to get a, a fairly accurate estimate of what percentage of the people are infected. Uh, so we should be doing both testing for people with signs of the uh, of the uh, condition, but also, you know, some random testing so we get to get some data as to what the incidence is. Uh, I mean, right now, the number of positive tests, you know, we've done, I think, something like two or three million tests in the U.S., and 20% of them are positive. Well, it just can't be true that 20% of the people are walking around with COVID-19 disease, uh, which means we're only testing severely ill people who are already showing signs of the condition. And we don't have valid data about, you know, how prevalent is this in our population across states uh, in the nation, across counties within that state. Can I, let me add, can I add to what Bob's saying? Um, okay, so it's very, it's very frustrating now that, you know, we, we've set out this um, roadmap for getting people back to work, but we readily admit um, there's, there's, there's a roadblock in the roadmap, and that is adequate and effective testing. And we look at best practices in places like, oh, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, other countries. Um, and they have organized this 
from after SARS and they were prepared and they have very adequate testing that is organized, it's, con, it, it's organized from a central government point that manages it and then it's conducted through the private sector. And what, what's frustrating right now is we know what needs to be done, but the only way we find out about these innovative tests is by, is by looking at the news and looking at the various scientific blogs and hearing from the CEOs of companies saying they're looking into it, but there's no general coordinating uh, organization. And that is definitely going to be needed in the future on a permanent basis, but we want to get it going uh, um, right away. And, and if we had that, um, it's just critically important. So when we think about getting people back to work, um, and not just getting people back to work, but getting society moving toward, you know, normal, you know, social and economic activity. The citizens need confidence in the, in, in the, in the medicine and the systems so that they feel comfortable going outside, getting back to work uh, and, and the like. And, and we just, Unfortunately, we don't have that, but we'd really, you know, urge, you know, the policymakers to move aggressively in that in that direction, not for the government to conduct all the tests or to innovate and identify the perfect vaccine and test, but to manage the innovations in the private sector and 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 do it from a, a centralized yeah. point. And, so yeah, so I'm impressed that we have uh, over 120 uh, business people online here, and uh, there's action that can be done at the state level. Uh, and so most states are the size of you know South Korea, or Taiwan, and, and you know sometimes the governors are much more responsive, uh, getting things done. They're more accountable to their people than our federal government is, and. Well, I mean, if we can get a few states going forward and says, you know, we're, we're going to try to, you know, have a more systematic, holistic approach to testing in our state, you know, then we can learn from those states and transfer best practices to the states that are lagging behind. Um, Great. Well, well, maybe we'll, I mean, there's testing is very complicated. We have a, we have another session coming up on testing, but maybe I'll ask, maybe I'll move on to ask a few other uh, questions. I noticed that what you guys don't really say explicitly in your in your plan what you would recommend we do when we test someone for virus and we we get active virus. Uh, some people are talking about a very um, robust contact tracing program. You know, maybe hiring hundreds of thousands of people to be a a core of people in America doing that. Others are saying we're going to test you and send you home for quarantine. Can, can you talk about, you know, what you would recommend people do once they're tested positive? Yeah, no, I, I think that the experience is that uh, the contact tracing is important. Uh, people will want to know if they were in contact with someone who has been found to test positive because they don't want to infect their uh, other fellow employees or their family members. Uh, so they should be willing to do this. And, you know, it's, it's interesting in Boston, you know, where I am, this training of, I don't think we need hundreds of thousands, but we do may need you know, thousands. Uh, it's being done by a nonprofit called Partners in Health that really deals with infectious diseases in Africa. And they're the ones who went to Africa five or six years ago when the Ebola uh, epidemic uh, broke out in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and the other countries. 
Uh, and that was one of the fundamental practices they used was once they found somebody showing up at one of the uh, testing centers and clinical centers who had Ebola, they, they were able to trace all the folks that they came in contact with and try to isolate them. And Singapore does this, and South Korea does this, and Israel does this. Uh, Israel, we're just finding out today, actually uses its secret police, Shin Bet police, uh, who has been, who typically is tracking terrorists coming into Israel, uh, but they kind of know where people are. Uh, and they're actually using that technology to find out folks who are in contact with someone known to be infected. And, you know, I, I know that uh, this goes against the grain of our civil liberties, but uh, this is a catastrophe that we're in the midst of, and we're making not much progress. And to have some suspension for a limited and defined period of time of our rights to privacy may be another one of the prices we have to pay. You know, if we're not going to do enormous damage to tens of millions of people uh, through forced idleness, right? Let me before, no easy choices you, here. You know, before you move on from there, let me bring up another area that's just you know really the same issue. But let's consider where we are now. It's it's um, mid-April, and we hear about all these different tests, and I think the U.S. will get its head together and we'll have those tests available and they'll roll out. But we need to set objectives. Okay, so one objective, um, and it's not an exclusive one, it's just one of many, but one objective is that, that by August, we should have uni available universal testing for all school-aged children, all teachers, and all parents as a pass for the kids to go back to school. If we don't have that, people are gonna be very, very uncomfortable. If we have that, it's their ticket to get back into school. Yes, we have to set up ground rules about it, but we have to set goals and objectives. And, um, you know, that's only, it seems like a long way off, four months, but it'll creep up on us. You need to start start working on it now rather than just, you know, seeing, you know, news reports on this and that about, about what the latest thing is, but nobody's really coordinating it. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so I would ask you guys a question about the regional plans, which has obviously been a lot of conversation um, um, you know, in, in DC and some controversy about it. The one thing I've not really heard anyone comment on is if we open up one region, uh, who's going to uh, develop and enforce a set of rules about travel in and out of an open region from a closed region? And if you don't do that, then is the whole plan of regional opening just flawed? Yeah, but... I think in a broader question, I think internationally, you know, when you come in to immigration, for sure, everyone's going to be tested, whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. Uh, and so that's at a national level. We can consider doing that. And in fact, if Trump had done the travel ban from China in January, not just from China, but for people who came in any other route, New York City would have been spared the worst of this because the infection in New York occurred from people who had been to China, but came to the US via Europe and were not tested at a Kennedy airport when they came in. Uh, that was the gap. And they could have looked in the passport and seen that. Uh, 
But I don't think we're going to be able to do that state to state, that every time you, t- you take a flight from one state to another, that we're going to start testing people when you arrive at that state. In a way, that's why we need more universal testing, almost on a random basis, just to see if one of these, uh, some, someone happened to come in from another state, another region, who did have the infection, and it set off a little mini epidemic at a very low level in a local region. And then we, if we can get there quickly, identify them, do the contact tracing, uh, you know, we, we can uh, cap the extent of that magnitude. Because uh, I, I think we're not going to be able to cut down interstate travel uh, within, the, uh, in, within the United States. Let, let, me, let me toss out a point here. And this is, um, you know, President Trump, I think, was, you know, misguided in, in, in what he said that he was in control of this because, you know, under the, the U.S. Constitution, um, the, the states have the right to, um, you know, maintain health for their citizens. And there is some um, interesting court cases about this. So, so it's, as it's turned out, the, you know, the, the, the state governors have, have um, called the shots here, which is consistent with what the Constitution says. Um, now, you bring out the point uh, about cross state lines, and there it gets a little blurry uh, because you have the inter- interstate uh, uh, commerce clauses and the like, where then the then the executive branch can get involved, and I think there may be um, some stepping on toes. But but I think what's what's unfolding here is uh, the state governors are. They, they recognize the immediacy of the issues and, 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 and they may have to step on each other's toes a bit on, on, on this, but the, the governors do, um, do call the shot, the basic shots here. So what Bob and I have done is, you know, we've looked at some of the executive orders uh, uh, that some of the state governors have put out on what is essential and what isn't. And they're just going to have to negotiate on this. And I think everybody wants the same thing. Um, They're just going to have to negotiate and work across those blurred state lines. Yeah. And the governors are collaborating. So, I mean, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts are talking, California, Oregon, and Washington. One of the states that uh, Mickey and I looked at was Utah. I think they came out with a very good plan. It's a very thoughtful plan. And so you could think about, you know, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming. Uh, Colorado, you know, could form a regional set and, and try to harmonize policies, you know, across that uh, Rocky Mountain region. Terrific. Well, I'm going to ask one last question, but I, we're going to also open it up after this to questions on the floor. So if people want to use the, the hand raising um, uh, function inside of uh, Zoom, either Liz and I will try to uh, manage, uh, manage the calls. Um, the question I wanted to ask you guys both is, you know, as, as sort of um, economists and, and, and trying to think about the sort of economy, one of the things I ask is in a very modest reopening, as you guys described, you know, we get a chunk of construction open, maybe we get Utah open, you know, some, some very modest fraction of the economy. How does the U.S. economy operate at this, like, 20% level. Is, is that possible? I, I think I've talked to a lot of people who are really troubled. Like, does the economy even work at that very low level of activity? 
And if it's going to be, if you think that is challenging, any thoughts on how we can help it work better there? Uh, l- let me let me take a crack at that. Um, yeah. The issue, the answer to your question is is it's it's going to vary by industry. And you know, one of the points we brought up earlier is you know the supply chains. Okay, so you know, and we mentioned construction and all the ingredients and components that go into that. And, um, you know, my, my view is that the, the, this roadmap to getting back to some normal, call it a new normal, uh, is, is not going to be some, some governor turning on the light switch. It's going to be a step-by-step gradual opening up um, with, I, I believe, some constraints on that. And I think gradually the economy uh, does come back. Um, some industries will be better than others at, um, at operating at, at you know, less than full capacity. Um, and some are going to, some are really going to struggle. Um, let me give you an example. Um, once again, construction, it should be fine getting, getting back up to running. Um, um, restaurants uh, and, and, and drinking places, which by the way, there are millions of workers there. If they are able to open up, but the, all the patrons have to be physically distanced apart and they can't um, mill around at a bar, um, some, yeah, some the services is, industry, services industry, like dry cleaning, you know, some, yeah. you, you know, which doesn't require imports of, of goods or products, uh, or just getting your grass mowed. Uh, yeah, that, that stuff can, that stuff can open up fine. Some venues won't, if they're only at 50, 40 or 50% capacity, it's not worth opening up. So I think the answer is it's really going to vary, but you know, one of the critical points here, and I, I think this is absolutely essential. Okay, if we look at the CARE Act, that provides a tremendous, a very generous um, income support to individuals who have lost their jobs, and a very generous uh, financial support to businesses, particularly small businesses, we should think of these as bridge loans and grants. They're not really stimulus. What is going to be desperately needed is once these uh, once the economy does open up, these businesses are going to have to see product demand pick up, uh, cash flows pick up, or they won't be able to rehire the people. So it goes hand in hand and some industries are going to do better than others. But we've got to, you know, we've got to start judiciously, but we have to start in places where we think is wise. Yeah. So one of my mottos is, Rob, we can't let the perfect or the best be the enemy of the good. Uh, it's going to be messy. Uh, and there are going to be st- uh, stoppages where you get, you know, the supply chain isn't there. Uh, but we're never to wait till it's perfect or the best. Uh, we'll never get there. So, you know, no, I think that's absolutely right. And look, I think that's what I love about your guys framework is it helps business leaders begin to put this in some perspective to think about the timeline along which some of these things might be available, and then to consider before all the things we want are available, what might be possible. And at least to me, that begins to be uh, a story about how we can open, you know, how we can get started. I'm happy to open it up to folks. Um, 
if, uh, if you want to either raise your hand or text in a question, I'm happy to open the floor up for other questions. Hey, Rob, Chris Fralick here. Hey, Chris, why don't you get started? Go ahead. How are you? I raised my hand. I don't know if you saw it, but I, j just sharing a couple of things I've seen across Twitter in the last hours and minutes. Uh, President Trump's uh, plan to reopen will be announced at six o'clock and the Washington Post has the document. It apparently is just a, it's a, it's conceding that the governors will decide when to open and giving them some guidelines about what, what they might want to look for to make that decision. And then sort of a phase one, two, and three of what might open. And in those times, very general, very high level, and apparently giving a target date of May 1st, but it's up to them if they want to go earlier or later. And then I saw a few hours ago, Governor Cuomo in New York said, we are staying in place until May 15th. So he just put another 30 days. And interesting, I live in Pennsylvania and the governor of Pennsylvania hasn't said a thing. And we're apparently in that same state you know, coalition in the East Coast. But it, I haven't seen anybody else give that same date. So it's just interesting. I think we're starting to see things targeting, you know, between May 1st and May 15th, but it still doesn't answer any of the other questions. I guess my, my question would be, does anyone in this group or our guests today know, do we know people on these committees of the states that are going to be actually making these hard decisions that we're all talking about? Do we know who's on the committee with Cuomo in New York or in any of the other regional states? So I do not. I don't know if anyone else does, um, but we can try to. I think, Chris, it might be a good topic for us to investigate yeah, as a group and, yep. and, and create some information. Maybe, Liz, we can try to follow up on that. Um, let's go to Tom McInerney for a question. Uh, I don't really have a question. I, first of all, there, there's a long-term care facility task force in Virginia that the governor just set up. So I'm on that. And, and part of that, I think, we'll we'll get at some of these issues. But but one of the things that, that I, I find interesting, and, and I'm probably a, a contrarian, is I don't know why we would think uh, too many people, either at the state or federal government, would necessarily be experts on how to do all this. Uh, you know, I, I've been traveling to China since 1987, so I have, uh, you know, I, and we're, we're actually merging with a Chinese company, so probably the last two or three years I've been there every six weeks, but, uh, but having been to China a lot, and the, this is the fourth time there's been a pandemic coming out of China, I think. And so, uh, you know, I first heard in early January from colleagues in China that there were issues. So we, we shut down uh, all travel to China, I think in early January, the first week of January. Uh, and, you know, we also, uh, based on where everyone was traveling, we shut down travel to Europe, I think, on the same day that Trump stopped travel to uh, China, which is January 31. So we were a month ahead of Trump on China. We were two months ahead of uh, the administration in, uh, on Europe. And then Virginia... Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. did the stay-at-home on March 30. 
but we at, at Genworth, we have 3,500 employees. We did a, we did a two-day stay-at-home test on March 5th and 6th, knowing that just given where this was going and knowing how flus work, uh, we did a two-day test, and, and then we worked well. We had all of our 3,500 employees work from home. So we started on March 5th or 6th. So again, versus versus the state of Virginia, March 30, uh, we have we have 3,500 employees, no coronavirus cases, none of their families have it because we we recommended all the we restricted domestic travel. So one of the one of the and we're now working on we've been working on for the last two or three weeks a plan for how we might start back on May 1st, uh, and you know we think we'll end up uh, going in with with. Uh, skeleton crews, and we've been doing that along the way the last, uh, I guess, six weeks since we, we closed uh, by having, you know, like five or eight people uh, in a facility that has a thousand because we had to have people do things on the mail and otherwise. My, my, I guess my broader question, I don't know why, I don't know why the private sector would necessarily think that people in either at the state or federal governments have that much more ability to decide how to do all these things. I, I just think that at both federal and state, they've all been very, very slow. Uh, just comments that I have. Great. Well, thank you, Tom. Maybe I'll let uh, Howard Sherman ask a question. You know, to, following on that point, to, to blindly rely on the bureaucrats in Washington who don't really understand the private sector, I think is a mistake. I think it's incumbent on each industry and even each company to put forth their own plan that will make their employees and the public feel safer. Like if I'm in the movie theater business, I'll announce that everybody comes to movie theater, gets a little sanitizer and a mask. Or if I'm in the airlines, you get on the airlines, you get a little kit, which is a little wipe to wipe your thing down and a mask. To just blindly let the government say you can open and you can't open, the supply, supply chain issues are enormous. But businesses are just sort of sitting back. I think they need to look at themselves and go, what can I do to make it safe for my employees and my customers to entice the public? Because I don't know, you know, there was a recent poll that 88% of people wouldn't feel comfortable going to a basketball game, even if it was held. So... I, we're missing the whole masking thing, the whole like everybody that walks in the mall, you take their temperature, you get a mask, you get a, you know, that, there's no talk about that. It's either on or off and we're missing, we're missing the interim play, which will just drag it out to give the medical community time to come up with an answer. That's what we want. We need a therapeutic. It's not a vaccination. We need a therapeutic like it's a like it's a you know strep throat, take this and you're fine. But that's going to take time, and we can't stay shut till then. So we need to just cut it way, way down, and we do it by masking temperatures. But businesses have to take that upon themselves. And frankly, if the place that I go get my haircut don't mask me up and everybody up, I ain't going there. But if they do, I would think about going there. So let me well, comment here. The statements about the private sector are all ones that Mickey and I sympathize with. The current state, the reality is that 42 to 45 states have put constraints on in economic activity and individual freedom of action. And they need a way to walk away from that, okay? So we have to provide them a narrative. 
which is different from what they're hearing from their public health people. Public health people don't want to have anybody die on their watch. Let nobody go back to work too soon. I mean, that's their bias. And we have, you have to have a counter narrative because what happened, they have to, the governors have to release the restrictions that are currently enforced. And the next day that happens on the six o'clock, somebody is going to be showing some person who just got infected or died because they released this. And that, that's what they're worried about. So I think the business community has to give the politicians, because the, the constraints exist now and they have to get out from under them. And they need a narrative and a story and support from the business community that we can do this in a responsible, safe way, just the way uh, you know the two of you were describing. Uh, because you can't go back now. The, the, the rules are in and they're gonna stay in until the governors say they're no longer in. Uh, so we, we can't put the genie back, you know, the genie's out of the bottle here and then the constraints are in and we, we have to, do, we have a much tougher task now of getting them to a state where they have to eliminate or relax the constraints that they put in. Let, let me add that, the, the, you know, the, the constraints uh, in a lot of states, I'm sure, are reflecting the cautiousness of the scientific advisors to the governors and they, they, as, as Bob said, they don't want any deaths on their watch. So they're going to be, um, uh, they're gonna tilt toward caution. And uh, I, I completely agree with Bob that, you know, it's, we, we do need an, another voice here, definitely. Meanwhile, if you think about the situation, the governors are listening to their scientific advisors who are basically saying, keep everything shut down. Um, and then they're turning around and begging the federal government for more subsidies. And we know that's not sustainable. We absolutely know that. So, so we, we definitely need to um, think logically. And, and I think it's, you know, Bob and I have talked about an ongoing, you know, or government organization to, to, to manage uh, this kind of tail risk for the long run. And definitely in, in, our, in our thoughts, it, it, it would be, you know, biz, private businesses in the private sector would be very, very involved because they, that's, what, that's what drives the economy. And that's what, that's what employs and keeps people employed. Absolutely. Maybe we'll go to Maxine Clark for a question. Yeah. My, my uh, comment was really going to be about infrastructure. One of the important parts of the infrastructure is our uh, public education system and even private education. And if the states have canceled school for the rest of the year, it makes it really difficult for people to go back to work when their children are not engaged. And the same is true for summer camp programs and summer activities that children participate in in cities where their parents work. And um, those have been, in many cities, canceled. I'm not sure they can be reinstated. But the school part is really important, and I don't know what we can do to any individual state to change that. But I know in Missouri, they've canceled school for the rest of the year, but the governor just said that everybody's going to go back to work on May 1st. So I don't think that's possible. I think those are in direct conflict, and somebody has to pull those things together. So this is just Tom after just to quickly follow up on that in terms of our tentative May one plan, which we probably aren't going to implement because Virginia just should, should stay down. So I'm sure they're going to be one of the last to open it up. But we'll, on that, well, we we we've we've been using a code. Uh, it's a 
coronavirus code. So if you're all of our 3,500 employees are working remotely, and if you and if you have kids at home or parents or whatever, and you can't work for whether it's eight hours, ten hours, one hour during the day, you enter the code. So we all know who's working, who's not. And if you're not working, that's fine. And there's it doesn't count against your vacation pay or any of that. You get you get sort of we've sort of done unlimited sick leave the way I describe it. But because but assuming we could open uh, by the summertime, you know June first. Uh, obviously, school generally is out by then, anyways, and and, fam- and parents have people at summer camp. So I've already said for those people that we that you continue to work remotely and. And if schools don't open against the fall, in the fall, you continually work remotely. For employees that don't have kids, then you can come in. And we're we're gonna do all the social distancing. We're gonna have, uh, you know, we have uh, clinics on all of our. Sites. Hey Tom. Yeah. Thanks. Maybe yeah. I could ask you. I think people would be really interested. Is if there was a document that you had that that sort of was like, what are some of the principles of the way you're organizing? My sense is there'd be enormous. Uh, appetite if we could share something like that maybe yeah, we'll we try have, to follow have, up with you we have all of our procedures written down on what we're doing both how we close when we close and how we're going terrific to- yeah terrific so let's go to maybe we'll go to Gwil york for one final question and then maybe i'll ask uh, bob and mickey if you guys have some final comments and we'll we'll wrap it up with an announcement from liz sure right, i was Gwil? really i was really intrigued with the notion of coming up with another narrative uh to balance the uh the the science and I think that a lot of, I, I'm in Massachusetts and a lot of what we've been trying to do up here is make sure that we don't um, uh, get ahead of the, uh, the beds and ventilators that we have. And I think that we've successfully uh, this week and next week, we'll know whether we've been successful, but it seems like we have been. And then I think that we'll be able to start to think about how we go back to work and what the rules are, are that we will relax ourselves. But I, but so I want us to, as business people, to think about how to have that other narrative but have it be uh, uh, respectful of the fact that uh, it could have been really awful if we, uh, if certain regions had gotten uh, so sick that they outstripped their uh, medical uh, capacity. And so over the next couple of weeks, all of the areas in the United States will have gone through their, their hopefully their first wave and that'll ex- right away change the conversation. So I just wanted to make sure that that was in the mix. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't want to say, you know, we're all, you know, we're science-based. I was an engineer. I believe in science. Any alternative narrative also has to be science-based. Yes. Is why the testing story has to come out and, and the risk factors by age have to come out and, and the like. And the alternative narrative should build on that solid foundation. Absolutely. So thank you for the, thank you. Terrific. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming. I want to thank our speakers for such a practical um, approach, which I think is so much of what we need to begin to focus on the real blocking and tackling details of how how we make this all happen. Uh, I don't know, Mickey, if you or Bob have any final thoughts on where you see the plan going forward or or how you hope maybe this kind of a plan and some of the other plans like this might you know, might become the, some of these regional plans or or something else if we don't think it can be a, a perhaps a unified federal plan. Well, let me, while Mickey is thinking the, the important thoughts, uh, I, I didn't really have one except other than to just in, keep encouraging this group. I mean, when you have uh, thoughtful business people, you know, like Chris and Tom who have spoken and, and they can go to the governor or the governor's staff and look, 
say, look, I think it's safe to go back to work. Here are the steps we're taking to ensure the safety of our people and their families. Uh, but it's not just health safety. We have to have think about the economic safety. We have to think about what Maxine said. Uh, we have to think about the school so that uh, working parents uh, with kids in school can go back to work uh, and know that children are being not only taken care of, but also being educated. Uh, and the, uh, the risk factors for children are very, very uh, so far have been low. I'm not saying it's perfect. You know, children have died. Uh, you're talking about less than a percent once you get below the age of 20 versus uh, 20 and 30 percent once you get above 70 uh, in terms of the lethality of this disease. Uh, so again, it gets back to what we said with Gwil, let's take a science-based approach uh, to be selective in how we think about getting back to work and getting back to school. Let me just toss out the point. Once again, <clears throat> we all kind of agree on a logical, let's call it a, a logical, medical, scientific, economic uh, roadmap to, to recovery, but we all agree, you know, one of the key stumbling blocks is testing. So if, if any of you have access to your, your, your uh, governors or even into Washington, that should be impressed upon that it needs to be, you know, a, a coordinated event. We should, all of us should be able to get on, um, get on uh, the, the CDC website and find out um, where you could get tested, um, how to get supplies. Um, th this, this should be, so we should, we should be very positive. Um, so I know we've made, as a nation, we've made mistakes to date, but we have to be forward looking because the current situation economically and socially is just unsustainable. It's just absolutely unsustainable. So we all have to have to be positive and and um, and constructive in 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 our suggestions going forward. And I, and I'm just hoping that the governors who um, hold a lot of the keys, even though I think I, I completely agree with the earlier comment, uh, Tom Weiss. You know, they they have the positions they have because that's what they are but they don't have any better judgment and aren't getting any better advice than, than we have. Um, but but we, I think they're going to come around to realize that the current situation is just unsustainable. And so if we, as, as Bob said, if we could, if we could um, provide this logical narrative, it'd be a big, big uh, plus. You just heard doctors Mickey Levy and Fred Kaplan describe the importance of flexibility in reopening our economy. There can be no one-size-fits-all solution that accounts for the impact COVID-19 has on different regions, industries, and demographics. But the one thing Levy and Kaplan believe we need everywhere is more testing and more tracing to provide more confidence that communities can reopen and people can go back to work. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.